0: well. Let's go ahead and jump in our text. John 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Hopefully you read it ahead of time. I'm going to read some of the important aspects of it that I want to emphasize, and then we'll uh, sort of work our way through it. John chapter 1. Let's look at 19 through 34. These are the words of God. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you, Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent, who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the, Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Skip down to verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Our, <clears throat> our Father and gracious God, we are thankful tonight that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are in awe of the Incarnation because it says a lot about you and a lot about your feelings about your creation. Tonight we rejoice in Christ, our mediator, and so we glorify Him this Christmas time as we open up the Scriptures. In Christ's name I pray, Amen. 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 So last week we covered the great prologue hymn of John 1, 1 to 18, and we learned from the Gospel writer that the eternal Word of God, the eternal Word of God, the, the Word who spoke into existence, the first creation, is now speaking again in and through the person of Jesus Christ who is now speaking and enacting and fashioning a new creation, That's how we should interpret the first part of John 1. John, the gospel storyteller, does not ground his theology of the word became flesh with abstract Greek principles of this rational logos type thing. Uh, Nor does he think that we can, like many of the Jews of his day, reduce the logos down to a mere principle of wisdom No, John wants us to see Jesus as the actual speech of God. He's the Word of God, the Logos of God, who is now speaking again. Indeed, the light Word, we can call him, has dawned on the darkness of the older covenant. This Son of Righteousness, Malachi says, the Son of Righteousness has come, and now he is filling men with brightness and clarity. Because Jesus doesn't just forgive your sins, he gives you new thinking. See, the light has come once again to remake the world. The prologue told us about the word. Now we get to watch the story unfold as people basically try to figure out what in the world's going on. We have this recalcitrant prophet, John the Baptist, out doing weird things, and we have disciples trying to figure things out. What is happening now that the light has dawned? Now, before we look at our passage, um, we need to acknowledge all of us here, that part of the problem in biblical interpretation is understanding the mind of someone who has died and is now with Jesus. All right? So one of the principles of hermeneutics is understanding the intent of the author. That's basic, you know, first class in Bible college. That's what they'll tell you. We have to understand the author's intent. What is he trying to say? To whom is he writing? Why is he writing? These are all great questions to ask, but perhaps the most neglected question is this: What sort of biblical symbolism is the writer employing in order to make his point? And John is full of it. He's full of the light and darkness. There's all these symbolism, all this symbolism that comes into play in his gospel. So, what is he? What is he trying to say? Now, I mentioned this last week. Um, and this probably goes for the whole New Testament anyway, but you're not really going to understand the Gospel of John unless you understand the Old Testament. The themes of the tabernacle and the temple, um, the holy furniture even inside the tabernacle and temple, the house of God, Uh, the cleansings and the washings. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks with the wedding at Cana. Um, All the ceremonies involved in, in Old Testament worship, all the festivals, all the feasts, all of these imageries, Um, even the people involved, the prominent people. You have Adam, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, you have Joseph even at the end of Genesis, Moses, um, Joshua, David, Solomon, all of these things come rushing forward in the gospel of John. And, And so these pictures and these prominent people have to be on our minds as we read the gospel. You have to sort of know a lot of that as you Try to understand John's gospel. In fact, to some degree, John is already assuming that you know some of these things. He's already assuming that you know um, because he doesn't spend a lot of time explaining them. Sometimes there's parenthetical remarks, but most of the time, he's just assuming that you've 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 you kind of understand. So. What we must do is do the hard work of knowing our Bibles so that we can see what he's saying and then we can apply what he's saying to our context and our mission here in Fauquier County, Virginia. So let's dig into our text and we'll just kind of walk through it as we go. So there are basically two sections to this last part of chapter one. The first part is about John the forerunner and his ministry. The second is all about the disciples who were gathered by Jesus now, the focus of the first section is the identity of John and the issue of baptism, which surrounds his audacious claims. So that's the first part. The second, the focus of the second, is the identity of Jesus and, and, and then his disciples, of course, who are there. But this issue of the ladder that Jesus cryptically speaks of in the last verse, this ladder which references and harkens back to the book of Genesis with Jacob in the story of Jacob. So, so this first chapter is the first week of the new creation story. All right. The wedding at Cana in chapter two, which that's the last day of this first week of John's storytelling. And the last day is the Sabbath rest. So there's a lot of those symbols in, in there as well. So we should read this and think, oh ha, God's new creation project has begun. The word is speaking again. God is renewing the creation. He's doing something new again. That's how we should read it. Now, in verse 19, uh, if you want to follow along, it would be helpful if you have it in front of you, but you can always just listen. But in verse 19, we have more law court language. Uh, You can see this is the testimony of John. In fact, the word testimony, you can even translate it as a witness. Um, And this word shows up a lot in John, of course. Uh, As I mentioned last week, John's gospel is a prequel to the covenant lawsuit of the Book of Revelation. It's a prequel, um, but it's better than the, the Star Wars prequels, right? All right, yeah. It's a prequel to the the lawsuit in Revelation. Now, part of the reason that this is the case is because of the legal language that's used throughout of John's Gospel. It's like he's prepping us for it. Um, the Spirit later is going to be called the Paraclete, which some translations say counselor, but it's actually Again, a legal term. It should better be translated as an advocate. The Spirit is our legal advocate. He's our defense attorney, if you will. So there's all this legal language in John's gospel. So, so John's gospel is no doubt a trial. It's a trial. And, and we will read later that he spends a lot of time. Jesus is on trial, but the reality is the, reality is the world is put on trial all along. Jesus has come as as God's person, as God's king, as God's prophet, he's putting the world on trial. So we have John the forerunner doing strange things and saying strange things as well. This typical this is typical of the prophets of course. And the prophets of old would do the same same types of things. Isaiah would walk around um, shall we say without garments. <laughs> um, Jeremiah is told in one situation to go hide his undergarments in the cleft of a rock. Uh, Ezekiel's told to sort of like lay down on his side for a certain amount of time. Prophets did weird things. They would do weird things as as sort of an enactment of what they're saying. They, they, They would use it as a word picture to get your attention so that not only what they're saying is being heard, but what they're doing is being provocative as well so that they could see it. People could see it. So John here has a message, he has a testimony, and this task of his is to proclaim this testimony. Now we know from the other Gospels that John lived out in the wilderness, Um, he ate locusts and wild honey, uh, wild locusts rather, and honey, and he also wore clothes that were made out of camel hair. A strange man indeed. Now John, you need to know this about John the Baptist, John the forerunner, he's the son of Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. John is a son of a priest. So John would have been very much equipped in Old Testament scriptures. He would have spent the early parts of his life enamored by the scriptures, studying the scriptures. John, the forerunner, would have known his Bible. And he's also, though, familiar with something else. He's also familiar with what's happening around him. He's up to speed on current events. He knows what's happening. John understands history, and he's able to discern between good and evil, the good and evil of his day, which is the mark of a mature man. John is something special. Now, there's an entourage that showed up. The entourage, just to give you the lay of the land. The Sadducees, of course, they're not in this part, but we'll see them later. They were the liberals, if you will. They had compromised with with Rome, and they basically rejected the whole Old Testament, except for the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, we run into them here, the Pharisees were the Bible-believing conservatives who hated Rome altogether, did not want to compromise at all with Rome. They hated Rome, and they thought that the answer to everything was law-keeping, or as we should think of it as, oral law-keeping, because they were all but keeping God's law. They were adding to it, and that's what we get Judaism. Now, the Essenes, they were probably, they they are the ones who probably influenced John more than any other group, but they were the radical separatists. They were the radical separatists who left Jerusalem, and they waited out in the wilderness. And the reason they left Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was compromised, so they're in agreement with John and Jesus, but Jerusalem had become compromised, so they left the city to go out into the wilderness, and their job there was to wait for a new Messiah to come and lead them into this new exodus. They wanted a powerful political figure, just like everybody else had done. And in Christ, we do have a powerful political figure, but it didn't happen the way that sort of the way that you know everybody had thought it was going to happen. So John, John the forerunner, he he does something different. His ministry is different. He's preparing the way. He's not interested in compromising with Rome, nor is he interested in even taking up arms like the zealots. The zealots were the ones who had you know, cloaks on, and they would, they would um, have daggers in their cloaks, and they would go into a crowded area, and they would literally take out their dagger, stab someone, put it away, and then, you know, oh, what's going on? And they would participate in sort of all the hoopla of the event. They were sort of the freedom fighters, if you will. They were the ones who thought the way out is through the sword, and Jesus clearly rejects that ideology. So he's not interested in those types of things. He's not a retreatist, despite the fact that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's a fighter. So he's not a retreatist. He is a fighter. No, he's not a retreatist. The the exodus is coming. He knows that. The, the, um, The Word became flesh. He's giving testimony about the Word. And not only that, he has a role to play in this story. John the Baptist has a role to play. He's pointing people to the new Moses. He's pointing people to the new Exodus. His message was resonating with Israel so much so that the the priests and the Levites, they came to John. John had been causing problems. He's he's recalcitrant. he's, He's sort of this odd figure, and he's provoking Israel in a way that nobody had ever done before. So they come, and they ask the question, Who are you? Who are you? Verse 19. In other words, who does John think he is? Who does he think he is? He's preaching out there without covering and oversight and permission by the elders at the church of Jerusalem. How dare he, right? He's saying things freely without formal church membership and accountability. How dare this man? Whose authority, that's part of the question here, whose authority are you to come out here and say the things you are saying? The audacity of this man. And John responds in verse 20 and 21 with three I am nots. He he confessed and did not deny, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. The Old Testament had prophesied of Elijah coming. Of course, Jesus says that John was Elijah and then there's confusion about Jesus being Elijah and there's all this stuff that happens but he's not actually elijah he's fulfilling elijah 's role but he 's not actually him he's not the messiah he 's not elijah he's not the prom- uh, the prophet that Moses had predicted in Deuteronomy 18 the the three things that the Jews at this time were looking for he 's none of those and so it, 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 you know, they're basically saying, if you're none of them, and, and since we have to go back to Jerusalem and give a report to the Pharisees on what's going on, verse 22, well, what do you say about yourself then? If you're not these things, wh- who are you? What are you doing? By what authority? What are, what are you trying to accomplish? What do you say about yourself? Well, John, he had gained a following, but he wants nothing to do with the accolades. He, he's not these three things. He's something else. John, he appeals to Isaiah 40, which Matt read earlier. He appeals to Isaiah 40 and he says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. I'm nobody. He's the pointer, not the point, right? He's the pointer to the point. But he isn't just crying out. No, he's he's baptizing people without the authority and the permission of the Pharisees who sent the whole deputation there. Verse 24. So what's this? What's this baptism thing about? Well, for starters, the prophets of old had predicted a great moment when God would sprinkle Israel clean again. That's what they predicted. Passages like Ezekiel 36.25 and even later in Isaiah 52.15, they all spoke about God's cleansing and purification. Ezekiel 36.25 and Isaiah 52.15. This, this cleansing and purification, the Messiah would come, and part of that is this issue of water. There's a lot of water discussion. And then, in fact, at the end of John's gospel, um, Jesus is stabbed in the side, and John says blood and water comes out, which is interesting because Eve was made out of Adam's side. Water is cleansing. Blood is, is, Jesus' blood is purifying a new bride, essentially. So there's all this symbolism, but but the Messiah would come. There's water. There's this washing away of sin. This isn't just some sort of sprinkling where you can then go about what you, your business. This is a full-on sanctification. This is a, a you know next level stuff, if you will. The Messiah washing away our sins. Now for John, he he readily acknowledges in verse 26 that he's preparing. Israel for the Messiah's arrival. That, he's, he knows that's his role. He's baptizing with water, which is preparatory, but the one who they do not know, remember from the prologue, he came to his own and they to his own did not know him. They don't know him. He's coming with another baptism. John's using water. Jesus has something even better, something where the water points to, a spirit baptism. His baptism, John's baptism, is subservient to the Messiah's baptism, which means that the Messiah is much greater than John. In in fact, John even says, in, in, in a level of humility that all of us should seek to attain, he says that he's not even, he's so below this one that's coming, he's not even worthy to do the job of a servant or a slave, untie his shoe. He's not even worthy to do that. He's so far below this Messiah. See, John's baptism, we're calling this baptisms and ladders, and so we're, we'll get to the ladder in a minute. But John's baptism, his is different than Christian baptism. Maybe you've always wondered this. There, there is a difference. John's baptism is explicitly one of repentance. It's a, this act of, of washing beforehand. We're talking about pre-Pentecost here. So John is prepping people for, for the Messiah. This is an act of repentance. They are cleaning themselves. They are in an act of self-abasement and, and contrition and, um, and, and purification. They want to be washed clean beforehand. See, for, for circumcised covenant Israel, they came to John to get themselves ready, to prepare themselves. They had heard his preaching and they wanted to be ready for the Messiah. So they, they confessed their need for salvation. So, so essentially, this is a confession of death. They had sinned, they had known that, John had confronted them with their sins, and they needed a way out. John's message was very, very simple. The Messiah is coming, which means everyone, everyone, including those who presume upon the grace of God, like the Pharisees, everyone must repent, must be cleansed, and they must come to this Messiah, that's John the forerunner's message. That's his task. Now, Christian baptism, which is on the other side of this, is similar, but on the other side of the coin, if you will. In Christian baptism, we affirm our condemnation of death, no doubt, but we affirm that it's already taken place in Christ. That's the difference. We affirm that our death, the death that is due us because of our rebellion and our sin That has taken place in Christ. So when Christ died, we died with Him. When Christ was buried, we were buried with Him. When Christ was raised, we were raised with Him. When Christ was seated in the heavenly places, we are seated in the heavenly places. And that's a 24-7 type thing, by the way. So we plead Christ's advocacy. We plead His advocacy. We need Him to be an advocate for us before the throne of God. That's essential to His ministry. But Christian baptism acknowledges Christ's substitutionary death, and now it marks us out as members of Christ and, and of his new creation, his new humanity. That's the difference. And, and maybe this goes without saying. I mean, it, <laughs> your membership is in Christ. We don't have formal local church membership here because the only membership requirement is baptism in Christ. You've made a profession, and and especially this applies to covenant children. But you've made a profession, and that's your membership. So when we were participating in the church repent a couple weeks ago, um, I was asked this several times the time before too. But are you a member of this church? And I would always say, I'm a member of Christ. I'm baptized in His name, and they don't usually like that answer because what you know, if you're not a member here, what are you even doing here? Well, they're glad you asked. But membership in this new creation, in this new humanity, the the, the new Adam, if you will, that Jesus is fashioning, that is Christian baptism. That's what it represents. Now, we are told in verse 28 that John was doing things beyond the Jordan. He was doing things beyond the Jordan, that is, in Bethany, east of the Jordan. So John is already thinking, and he is ready for another exodus, another re-entry into the land, if you will, into this garden world, into this, this, this place that the word creator that we learned about is going to remake. He is waiting for this new Moses. He's waiting for a new Joshua to take the land. That's what he's thinking. To get into the mind of John the forerunner, that's what he's thinking. Now, connected to this idea is what we find in the next verse. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, that is the day after the interrogation from the bureaucrats from headquarters, the next day John saw Jesus coming and he confessed And he said of him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the great confession that paves the way for the rest of the gospel. Jesus is the Lamb. He's the Lamb that's slain before the foundation of the world. John says as much in the book of Revelation. I think it's in chapter 7. Jesus is the Lamb who is put on the altar in the tabernacle or in the temple grounds for the temple ceremony. Jesus is the Lamb who was led to the slaughter for our transgressions and our sins that were placed on Him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's His task, that's His role. Now, John confesses in verse 31 that He didn't recognize Him at first, which is bizarre to me because He's His cousin. John was born probably around Passover, um, six months before Jesus. Jesus was probably born six, you know, six months after Passover um, around the Feast of, of Succoth or, or the Tabernacles or the Tents. So here we have John, though, saying he didn't recognize him at first. I don't understand. He didn't, he didn't, maybe he didn't recognize that his cousin was the Messiah. We don't exactly know. But the reason that he was baptizing, though, he says, the reason John was doing what he was doing was so that the Messiah would be revealed. Why would he do that? Well, the answer is the Messiah has come to rescue his people. And who is he going to rescue? The people who are repentant. The people who are, have washed themselves clean, who have, have listened and hearkened to John's message. So John's baptizing with the expectation that the Messiah is going to be revealed through this. Of course, we know that it's because God says as much. So all of John's actions are done in consistent manner with the Scriptures. It's, he's done it in a manner consistent with all of the Scriptures. And his testimony is rather compelling. He says, he gives testimony here in verse 32, that the Spirit as a dove came out of heaven and remained on Jesus. The Word is anointed by the Spirit, the same Spirit who hovered over creation the first creation, is now on the Word as the new creation project now begins. See, John says in verse 33 that God told him how to identify the Messiah. God told him how to identify him. That's why he didn't recognize him. The one who is anointed by the Spirit and the one who thus baptizes in the Spirit, that's the Messiah. And then in John 30, look at verse 34, John confesses and testifies and gives witness again in the courtroom of God This is the Son of God. See, John confesses that Jesus is God's Son, which for most of us, we think, well, he confesses that he's the second person of the Trinity. Sort of. In this day and age, when you confess that someone is God's Son, that's code language for David's son, which is royal language used to describe a king. This anointing is a, an anointing for the kingdom. That's what we should, how we should see it. Now in the next section, we see Jesus again. He's beginning, beginning his ministry, gathering disciples. And John has two disciples with him, verse 35. And when John walks up to them, verse 36, he says, he says it again, Behold the Lamb of God. He says it again. The, disu- the two disciples follow Jesus in response, verse 37. Now, as part of the process of discipleship, Jesus asks them what they are seeking. What do you seek? And they respond, well, where are you staying? Verse 38. He responds in verse 39, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Andrew, he gathers his brother Simon Peter, and he tells him that they've found the Messiah, the Christ. Verse 41. Simon meets Jesus for the first time. And Jesus changes his name to Cephas, or Peter. The next day, we have another day here. There's three days, and then there's a fourth day. That's seven. That's why we get the, the first week, if you will. But the next day, Jesus heads to Galilee. Where does he find? He's gathering his entourage, right? He's gathering his, his core team to launch a project into the world. He finds Philip and he tells him to follow me, verse 43. Philip undoubtedly knew Andrew and Peter, for they were all from Bethsaida. Philip is intrigued to the point um, that he tells Nathanael that one whom Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets, they found him. They found this guy, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, verse 45. Nathanael replies, and this is not to be seen in a chiding way, but more in a surprised way. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is this lowly place. What could possibly come from Nazareth? So Philip invites him to come and see. Nathaniel comes to Jesus and he says, behold, he says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. Jacob, if you remember, this is a, a, a reference to Jacob. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, was a deceiver. He was the one who stole his brother's birthright, if you remember. But Nathanael was different. Nathanael is not like, not like that, and he wants to know more. And he says, Well, how do you know me, Jesus? How do you know me? Verse 48. And Jesus saw him under the fig tree long before Philip came and told him. Now, just as a side note, fig trees are known to be a place where rabbis would gather their students and hold a classroom exercise. Fig trees symbolically would have been a place of study, a place of rest, a place of, you know, sort of learning your Bible. So Nathanael was probably praying and probably reading his Bible, and Jesus saw this. He saw it. Somehow, in, in his full divine wisdom, he saw Nathanael doing this. And so, probably, Nathanael was searching for the Messiah. He was ready to heed this. Hence, Jesus picks him and chooses him. And Nathanael confesses that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, in verse 49. Now, Jesus is impressed with this confession, but there is more yet to come. He says, Greater things than these, verse 50. The chapter ends in verse 51 with this obscure ladder reference, which again harkens back to Jacob in Genesis 28. Let's read it. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I'll just make this very simple. The point of the ladder is very, very, very simple. When Jacob had, had the dream, if you remember, he laid down and, and his pillow was a rock, not the most comfortable of things. He lays down and he has a dream, and this dream then, he, he calls the place Bethel in, in Hebrew, meaning the house of God. The latter vision was a dream about God's answer to the problem of Babel. If you remember the story of Babel, they had built this giant thing, and God had to come down to see it, and he confuses their language. It was, an, it was, a, it was a, the first real big humanist project in history. The ladder is different. God would build a house on earth, and this house would be a place where heaven and earth meet. The temple, right, sort of being in the foreshadow. This was a ladder where angels would come and go. So this all was, a, was basically symbolism for the tabernacle and temple that God would build through the means of you know, Moses, and then the temple would be Solomon. So Jesus says all of that's fulfilled in him. Jesus is the temple, He and those who are in him are part of this great temple as well. In this ascending and descending thing, did you notice the language back when the Spirit descended as a dove? Now we have this ascending and descending of the angels. We should also be brought to mind Daniel 7. The Son of Man descended to the earth, and then he ascended to the Ancient of Days, and he was given a throne, and he was given dominion and everlasting kingdom. See, Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God's covenant dealings with man now rests. Everything is pointing to him. Everything is centered on him. Jesus Christ is the mediator for the entire world. As Calvinists, we have no problem saying he's the savior of the world. We have no problem with that. We have no problem with saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because that's what Jesus Christ does. He takes away the sins of the world. He is this ladder now. The coming and going of angels signifies the heavenly mission, the heavenly mission of God's great plan of redemption for the world. I think N.T. Wright sums this up very aptly. He says, quote, When you're with Jesus, it is as though you're in the house of God, the temple itself, with God's angels coming and going, and God's own presence there beside you. End quote. See, this passage, with all of its themes and all of its word pictures, can be boiled down to this very fact. Before Christ is our Savior King, he must be our servant priest. Before he's our Savior King, he must be our servant priest. This work of the new creation requires a sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of mankind. See, there's no possible way that this spirit baptizer and latter redeemer is ever going to accomplish all that God has set before him without first being a servant and a priest. There's no crown without first a cross, right? See, in his baptism, Jesus was anointed as the great prophet, the great priest, the the great king. But those things all require his sacrifice as the lamb. But that's not the only thing we gather from this passage. See, John and the disciples show us how to exegete Christ to the world. We talked about that last week. He explains God. Jesus explains God. The Word explains or exeges God. And we also, in turn, are to exegete Christ to the world. That's our task. But John shows us how that's done. How, how does prophetic ministry happen? Why is something like Church Repent a totally viable prophetic ministry that should be done? And we can discuss tactics and all that all day long, and that's good and right. But it, the fact that it needs to happen is evidence of the fact that we have principles in Scripture that we can utilize to make it happen. See, John, they exegete Christ to the world, they insist upon the supremacy of Christ in every single area of life. To, to, they, they proclaim him to anyone who will listen. To declare boldly, the loudly, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how we exegete Christ to the world. We, we, we're abolitionists, but it's not going to happen until the gospel takes root. And the gospel's not going to take root if we're not proclaiming it. Exegeting Christ to a watching world. So th- this is our calling. This is our task. If I could just sum up this passage, there's a lot here. To sum it up, our task is this. To insist that all peoples and cultures and institutions bow before Christ the Savior King. To insist on it. John the Baptist insisted upon it. A great preacher. You know, they, they say, you know, Spurgeon was the greatest preacher in history. No, 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 no. John the Baptist, John the forerunner was the greatest preacher. In fact, Jesus said he was the greatest man. The greatest of all the prophets. We think of the lofty, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, all these big, huge names of the prophetic ministry that they had in crucial times of Israel's history. John the Baptist is greater, he's the forerunner to the Messiah. Jesus said he's the greatest, he was an amazing preacher. And, and what he did and what the disciples did when Jesus is gathering them and he's, they're telling their friends about it, their, you know, their, their brothers about it. And this, we found the Christ. We found him. He's the king of Israel. He's the son of God. We found That's our mission. To insist that all people's cultures and institutions bow before Christ, the Savior King. And so we have to ask the question, what sort of message are we communicating to the world? If that's our task, we have to ask that. What message are we communicating to the world? We have to deal with that. We have to deal with that in a serious way. Uh, Whether that's your own individual life, what message are you communicating at work? What message are you communicating with your friends, your spouse, your children? What message are we communicating on the abortion clinic sidewalk? What message are we communicating to the world? Are Are we translating or exegeting Jesus Christ, in a manner consistent with who he is and what he has done, in a manner consistent with what the Bible says about him. Sadly, the modern church has communicated Christ as priest and only Christ as priest. That's it. We have, by and large, failed to declare him to be the prophet and king that he is. We have not been exegeting Christ to the world because we've held back the true meaning of Christ's coming. Ooh, we sang joy to the world, right? Joy to the world. Right? And it's in the song title, it's in the, the you know the words. Joy to the local church and her institution. Joy to your family, and that's sort of where we leave it, joy to the world. We have seen his baptism, no doubt. We have seen the cross, no doubt, but we've missed the ladder. We've missed Christ's enthronement. We've missed the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ today, and so we have to correct it. And I will say this, as we get ready to launch something like Cross and Crown Radio and add that to the repertoire of the onslaught of what is Cross and Crown Church, we have a calling and a task. And the, for far too long, the church's uh, task has been to just please members and create programs and do, do all the fun stuff. We have a task that is attached to this teaching, preaching, prophetic ministry. And that's all of us. I mean, we're all in the game here. And if we're not, we should be, but we're in the game. And we have a, uh, you know, the whole light of the world comment. We'll get to this in John's gospel. That's partly in Isaiah. Israel was a light to the nations, Isaiah 42. And that's our task. And that light is the message, the proclamation the, the screaming from the rooftops of the gospel, we have to declare that this lamb is a lion. The lion of Judah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we praise you and we thank you that, and, and of course we also glorify you that, that you have given us this gospel, this good news, that you are the gospel. The good news that this, the Savior Priest is also our Savior King and, and, and the word prophet too. We are enamored by the glorious truths found in the Bible, and we trust that you will utilize our study to sharpen our thinking and clarifying our, uh, clarify our acting. Help us, Lord Jesus, to exegete you to the world, to exegete you to the world, to our neighbors, to take this message by the power of the Spirit to the nations, to truly teach people the importance of you as the ladder, the mediator, the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. We ask, Father, that your spirit would help us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.